He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. From the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. A very Merry Christmas to all of you, even as everyone else quits celebrating. Uh, We keep it going today with wonderful Christmas carols, and I know that you'll enjoy them. Tomorrow, the season of Epiphany will begin and Christmas will end. We have celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord, sent into the world not for the world's condemnation, but that the world through him might be saved. To all who believe that the Son of God has come in the flesh, come in Jesus, that he was crucified, risen, and ascended, God has given the gift of adoption as his own sons and daughters. As John writes, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is the message at the heart of Christmas, that that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting sins against us, entrusting to his church the message of reconciliation. In one divine person, God and man are joined together inseparably in Jesus. As St. Athanasius put it, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. Namely, that is, the Son of God, a child of God. If God had merely wanted to forgive sins, he could have issued some sort of eternal decree. If he had merely wanted to offer atonement, that also could have been offered. But but in the incarnate Christ, we see the greatness of the salvation that is on offer in the gospel, that of being joined to God inseparably, but without confusion. We are to become by grace what we are not by nature, what we cannot be by nature, partakers of the divine nature. And all of this is God's perfect will. Tomorrow we will begin the Epiphany season in which we remember Christ's manifestation of himself among the nations, first to the Magi, then to those gathered to be baptized in the Jordan and in Galilee among his disciples. Epiphany means simply a showing forth. And in this case we consider, and what we meditate upon, is the showing forth of the glory of God in the person of of Jesus Christ. The teaching of the church is not that in Jesus Christ we see something like the glory of God or that we see something which may be or might be or perhaps is the glory of God. No, we say we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Next week we will think upon the scene at the Jordan, the heavens opening, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. As we consider the Lord's baptism in the Jordan, we will be led to think upon our own baptisms, our own status as children of God, the name of God pronounced upon us, the cross of Christ marked with oil upon our foreheads. But if you're like me, you might have wondered, saying, I know God is well pleased with his son. I know that God is well pleased by Jesus Christ, my Lord. 
but is he well pleased with me? I read texts like today's reading from the prophet Jeremiah in which we read, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. I mean, hear that, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. I live a very good life. I'm very well taken care of, thank you. But am I really satisfied? Are you really satisfied with the goodness of the Lord and his goodness alone? I can never quite capture it. Do I experience spiritual abundance? Am I satisfied with the Lord's goodness? Am I not rather satisfied with my own abundance? The abundance that I get for myself? Do I not rather think that what satisfies me and what satisfies the Lord himself is my own goodness and not his goodness? Or rather that what makes me dissatisfied with me or makes God dissatisfied with me is my lack of goodness? What tears at my soul, what tears at my heart is the suspicion that I should not be called a child of God that this is all some sort of mistake. And if you were honest with yourself, you know that if you were to appear before the throne of God, there is nothing you could possibly say on your behalf. There is nothing you could say that you have done or not done or deserve. I remember several years ago, I officiated the funeral of an old war hero. He had flown missions over Germany in World War II in a B-17 bomber. He was one of those kind of great men of the greatest generation. He would always wear a little flower in his uh, sport coat. He was very kind all the time. And he always showed up to the 7.30 a.m. service in a suit and tie. But he would never look up When I would give him communion, he would kneel at the rail and he would put his head as far down as it would go. And I always wondered why this was. When he finally died at over over 90 years old, one of his sons recounted that his father had never been able to let go of one evening in the war, an evening flight over Germany. The flight had run long. They had searched and searched for their targets, but due to cloud cover, they had never been able to find them. Afraid that fully loaded with bombs, they wouldn't have enough fuel to cross the channel and return to England, he, as captain, made the fateful decision to just drop the bombs indiscriminately without knowing where or whom they would hit. He lived for over 60 years with the suspicion that he might have killed innocent people. Now, he believed in forgiveness and the forgiveness of a loving God, but he knew that he did not lie, that that forgiveness did not lie within his own life or his own merit. And you might look at that story and say, well, he did the best he could. None of us would have done things any other way. Give the guy a break. But he could never give himself a break. It was something that he took with him to his death. 
Every Christian should know that he or she is a sinner. We're harder on ourselves than anyone else. And no matter how much we try to scrub our hands, no matter how much we seek to turn around, there's nothing that can be done to remove the stain. We cannot make peace with God. We cannot set aside our devotion to sin and therefore our condemnation to death. If I owe a debt and I cannot pay it, I must appeal for mercy. Maybe you've had a debt that you can't pay and you've had to talk to the bank and say, listen, this is not going to get paid. Maybe you've owed a debt to a friend of a personal nature done something wrong that you can't do anything to right, and all you've been able to do is say, I can't repay you, all I can do is ask for mercy. If I'm in prison and I'm sentenced to life, or perhaps even death, I must appeal to a judge to be placed in the right. Despite what one of my favorite movies says, salvation does not lie within the prison, but outside. Prisoners don't pay their debts to society. In fact, all the words we use for prisons fail. They are not good at correction. They are not good at bringing about penitence. And they are no good at reform. A prison is a cage. It is a hollow place. And the sinner knows just how hollow the life of sin is. Just how miserable it is. Some might try to delude themselves or lie about just how bad it is or blame it on someone else or say, I like it. I enjoy it. Remember, one of my mentors, Bishop Parsons, used to tell a story. He was outside the doors of the church shaking hands with everyone. And that was in the days when in the confession you had to say, have mercy upon us miserable sinners, miserable offenders. And she said, Father, I want you to know that I know I'm a sinner. I've just never been a miserable one. The life of sin will always, even despite what we say, be empty. It will always be hollow. Even in this current cultural moment when no one can agree about what the true end or purpose of human life is, we know that it does not lie in evil. We know that whatever the end of human life is, it is absolutely not to be a sinner. One of the great things about the new prayer book that's in your pews and hopefully in your living room is the restoration of these wonderful and classic ways of speaking about sin. Sadly, miserable offenders is not there. This prayer book takes sin seriously. In the confession, we acknowledge and lament our many sins and offenses which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against the Father's divine majesty, provoking most justly his righteous anger against us. In morning prayer, we say that apart from God's grace, there is no health in us. And yet none of that reduces us to a bunch of self-loathing grovelers. No. The Christian who knows just how much of an offender he or she is will know all the more about the miracle of God's love and mercy in Jesus Christ. That man who dropped those bombs he didn't believe in God's forgiveness less. He believed in it more. He knew how unworthy he was. In this earthly life, if we bring shame or dishonor to our families, we will bear that weight. But we will never, ever really fit in. Because we so often 
attach evil to a person and not to deeds. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi in the UK, has written that shame attaches to a person, but forgiveness attaches to deeds. And this is an amazing thing. It allows that essential goodness of being made in the image of God to be maintained in us, even as we commit acts of evil. Our deeds can be utterly evil, deserving condemnation, while we ourselves can be redeemed, can be made utterly spotless. We can become children of God. And of course we don't deserve it. But this is why John says that this thing that happens, being given power to become the children of God, does not happen by blood, meaning it doesn't happen because of whom we're related to or not related to. Thanks be to God for that. Or the will of the flesh. We can't will in ourselves to become children of God. Or the will of man, but by the will of God. At the end of the day, no one chooses the Christian life for themselves, apart from the inner working of divine grace, which draws us to a holy life. It is all a gift. To believe otherwise is heresy. I was so pleased on Friday when one of our seminarians just, just, just said so easily and so readily that faith is a gift. And I said, thank you. That's the first thing you need to know about faith is that it's a gift. It's not something you figure out. You and I are here this morning because God has ordained it. He has willed it. He has destined it. I mean, I don't know if you thought that when you were putting on your shoes this morning, that God has willed it that I do this thing this morning, that I come to this place this morning. But it is true. If you are here and you do not know the grace of God and you've not received that gift, know that you too are here because of God's perfect will. There's no other reason. And that is why, and I want to say this strongly this morning, I give thanks for every one of you as we begin this new year. Not because you willed to be here, not because I willed to be here, or because God, because we all willed, hey, let's plant this church. Some of you were a part of that. Those were good times. I don't give thanks for that. I don't give thanks for you when you attain to moral perfection, or even when you have success in life, when you get that wonderful new house or that wonderful new job or that wonderful new car, or even when you defeat temptations to sin. For that, I can't even give thanks in myself. I give thanks to God because he himself has called you and he has called me and he has made you his own and he has made me his own. It is all a gift. And I can give thanks for my own life and the life of my family, not because it's perfect, and believe me, it's not perfect. But I give thanks because of God's will for us being perfect. And so, like Paul, I give thanks for you. Not because of your reputation as Christians, which, let me say, uh, 
Ellen and I had a couple over for dinner last night who moved out of town, and they just spoke of how well-regarded Christ Church is among their friends. But none of that matters. What really matters is the gratuitous grace of God which is working among you, which is working in my life and in the life of my family and in the life of this parish. I give thanks for all of you, not because of the good we do or the good we will do or the health we have or will have or not have, but because of God's great mercy in calling us his children. As John says, see what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And what? Do you know it? So are we. Why? Because God calls us that. That's what's at the heart of this, Christian, of this Christmas message that you and I have been called the children of God. It is something we cannot call ourselves. And this is the reason that the church's central act of worship is not the singing of songs about how much we love Jesus and how much we will to love him more. It's not even about prayer on the knees but it is this Eucharistic sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is the very sacrifice that Jesus himself offers before the Father in his own body at the right hand of God, constantly offering his body and blood before the Father. That is what we are joined to today, and that is God's perfect will. On Christ the King Sunday, while I was on sabbatical, I heard one of the worst sermons that I've ever heard in my entire life. It was at Maudlin College, Evensong, wonderful choir. I mean, they were magnificent. And a retired bishop stood up to give the sermon. And the gist of it was this. Obviously, Christ is the king. Look at how lovely the Church of England is. I'm glad some of you get that joke. And I thought, I sat there, and I was thinking of C.S. Lewis sitting in a stall at Magdalen College and what he would have said to that bishop. I think he would have said the problem with that sermon was it was nice. Too nice. No. We have to stop acting like this. We have to stop giving witness to how lovely our churches are. We have to stop acting as though the reason people should come to church is how lovely and beautiful and good it is. We have to stop acting as though we have anything else on offer but adoption. And adoption is messy. really messy. It destroys all the affinities that we have by blood or our will. If any of you are adopted, you know what I'm talking about. You didn't decide to be adopted. You didn't will to be adopted. You were adopted by the grace of parents who love you. We don't have on offer our own goodness 
We don't even have an offer our good music or our good programs or our good ideas for evangelism. The only thing we have on offer is the reconciling body and blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the life of the world. That we may have life and have it abundantly. And we offer back to Jesus what he first offered to us. A free offering of thanksgiving before the Father, which comes out of who he is, the only begotten Son of God. And we offer him his own body and blood. May we offer our thanksgiving through Jesus Christ, not out of ambition or natural goodness or the grace we bestow on ourselves, but out of abundant thanksgiving for the free gift of his grace, by which we are made what we could not otherwise be, children of God and heirs of the Most High. Thanks be to God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.